market share incentives to build up or to to uh, to lessen their uh, investment in certain areas, their activities in certain areas. And indeed, there was maybe responding to broader industry trends, um, certain types of loans, uh, certain types of uh, bonds in certain industries may be more fashionable. Uh, these are a range of what you might call behavioral factors, factors that assume that these credit assessors are something less than perfectly rational, uh, all-knowing beings. And of course, that is the way individuals and uh, organizations and indeed industries can be. So if we think about that assessment from the standpoint of individual, organizational, industrial, even broadest institutional factors that can skew assessment, then we can explain, I think, a substantial portion of those misjudgments. We can help us understand why they get it wrong, particularly in those spectacular incidences like we're facing today with some private mortgage. So, Paul, can you uh, uh, talk about, perhaps, in the context of the uh, bursting of the housing bubble, uh, what should these credit granters have done compared to what they actually uh, appear to have done? Well, I'm going to be, first off, I'm curious of what Amir thinks, because he's looking at the credit bubble and the subprime mortgage, I think, from an interesting perspective, the perspective of some of the investors in the securitized instruments that uh, result from putting together those pools of loans. Let, let, me, let me say set up Amir for a moment by, by noting that there are any number of credit assessors as we go from the initial loan to the, uh, the homeowner borrowing to get that first home to the uh, government agency that, that assesses the standards of underwriting for that loan to the major credit rating agencies that come in and, and give a letter rating uh, and okay or confirm the credit worthiness of that borrower to the investment bankers who take those loans, pool them together, and enhance them with uh, monoline insurers and like. There are many different players here, not just the lending officer. In fact, they may be maybe one of the least important of the players here. I, I think if we want to think about this this subprime crisis, we should focus on some of the experts. Uh, and I don't mean the lending officers. I mean uh, the uh, the government chartered agencies that are charged with under, uh, overseeing the underwriting quality and procedures of those lending officers, and in particular, I think the major credit rating agencies, uh, I would argue both of them have been asleep at the switch uh, for different reasons. I'd aim at uh, issues related to the way they position themselves in markets, the way they compete for market share in the uh, home loan business and in the securitization rating business, and um, also related to issues of industry fashionability. So if we were to look at each one of those, I'd have some prescriptions for you. Uh, I think if I were going to give you a broad prescriptive, kind of what should we do, I'd say rely less on the word that we hear from those government-chartered agencies and the word that we hear or the assurances we get from those major credit rating agencies and if you are an investor in these securitized instruments, you've got to do more of your own homework. You can't rely on what those letter-grade ratings or those underwriting procedures on paper tell us. Uh, going further than that, there are a number of things I think Congress can do uh, and uh, other investors can do to mitigate uh, some of the, the fallout when these, these experts make spectacular misjudgments. But the first step is just rely less on what you hear from them. Paul has uh, uh, set you up. So, Amir, you study the mortgage default crisis following the rapid expansion of the supply of mortgages to 
suspect market, pinning much of the blame on the moral hazard of mortgage originators aided and abetted by securitization practices that disconnected the lender from the borrower. Uh, is, is this the way you see it, this degree of separation from the uh, originator uh, to, the, to the borrower that's really at the root of, of the problems that we're facing? Well, yes, I agree, actually, uh, with a lot uh, of what Paul said. I think one of the points that I try to make in my research generally and specifically when looking at this current subprime mortgage crisis is that any time you separate the party that is originating or monitoring or servicing a mortgage loan from the party who is actually holding the credit risk, you guarantee what I would call an incentive conflict in that we know that monitoring a loan, servicing a loan, originating a loan is costly. And we need to figure out a way to compensate the party to do the job effectively. Holding the credit risk is an obvious way to force them to do the job properly. If I'm going to originate a loan, then I'm going to keep on my own balance sheet and therefore suffer the consequences if the mortgage defaults, then I naturally have an incentive to properly monitor service and uh, originate the loan. So, for example, in this crisis, we saw a huge run-up in the process of securitization, which is a technique where mortgage originators sell their loans to a collateralized debt obligation, which then tranches up the securities and sells them to investors. And here, we're doing the critical thing that uh, would distort incentives, and that is we are separating the people actually making the loans uh, from the people who are actually holding the credit risk. And I think that is a big reason why we saw lax screening standards and ultimately we're seeing this, this spike in mortgage defaults. So it's these, uh, how much of the blame would you uh, would you lay at the feet of these uh, sort of too clever by half financial devices? Well, I think ultimately that whenever you try to separate the uh, originator of a mortgage or a loan from the person actually holding the credit, there are usually contractual arrangements that people will demand in order to try to preserve the incentives. And a lot of my research on other areas shows that these contractual arrangements are usually successful. Uh, I think we just didn't get it right with securitization. So ultimately, I think without the securitization wave, we probably wouldn't have seen these kinds of defaults. But I think when we look at why securitization failed to pre preserve lender incentives, then there's other parties to blame. So, for example, the credit rating agencies. By giving mortgage-backed securities unrealistically optimistic ratings, rating agencies effectively reduce the incentives of lender, or I'm sorry, of the investors holding the loans to really ask, you know, what am I getting? So in other words, if I get a piece of paper called a mortgage-backed security that has a AAA rating on it, then I might not question whether the person who originated the mortgage and is servicing the mortgage has the proper incentives. Um, so in that way, I would point the blame not just at securitization itself, but almost at a, a number of other factors also helped contribute uh, to the securitization, basically failing to preserve these incentives. And for that reason, I think you got to look at least to some other some other things such as such as the rating agencies. I mean, I'm based here in Washington, where we regulate the flight of birds over the Capitol. So, is the is the solution? Uh, greater regulation of financing schemes that are hatched on Wall Street? 
no, I would think that it's not regulation. I think the analog we want to look to is other financial innovations that have occurred in the past. And you see a lot of times that there are bad incentives and you see blow-ups of markets. But in the long run, it's not that more regulation is needed. It's better information that leads to better contracting, better legal arrangements. So an analog to this would be the explosion of junk bonds in the late 1980s, which we all know led to enormous amounts of defaults and in part contributed to the uh, very severe 1990-91 recession. It's not like junk bonds disappeared after that. Instead, people realized what the problems with junk bonds were and looked forward. I think securitization has the same kind of feel to it. So, for example, one of the ways that securitization can potentially preserve the incentives of lenders is to, is to force the originator of a securitization pool or the servicer to hold the equity tranche, which is the lowest tranche of the pool, so that they basically take the first losses on any defaults in the mortgage pool. This seems to be a very sensible contractual relationship that you can basically help to preserve incentives through. And how would you force people at various uh, points of the stream to actually hold the paper rather than just simply, you know, uh, cut them up into slices and then, and then sell them? Well, I think there is precedent for this kind of uh, contract that you can write uh, in the syndicated loan market. So this is a market uh, where large corporate entities obtain loans from multiple creditors, and there's usually one creditor called the lead arranger who syndicates the loan out to other participant lenders. And a common contractual provision you see in a syndicated loan is literally that the lead arranger or some of the participant lenders are forced to hold the loan. They are prohibited from selling any part of it. So likewise, in a securitization, in arranging a securitization, I'm not a lawyer, but I imagine that it's possible to contractually force the servicer of the mortgages, so this is the party that actually monitors the borrowers and obtains the payments, uh, and the originators, of, the originators of the mortgage, which is obviously the party that's you know, looking over the docks and making sure that the person is, has the income they're claiming to have and whatnot, uh, for those, you can possibly by legal arrangement force them literally to hold the lowest tranche of the securitization pool uh, in a way that preserves their incentives to properly do their job. I'd like to jump in a bit on what Amir is saying. I think, Amir, the analysis directly spot on, I think, is this prescription for addressing uh, the issue in the context of mortgages is, is, is also spot on. I think it's not the only part of the solution, but I think it's a part of it. What I find interesting is the contrast between uh, the, uh, the implosion of subprime mortgage market uh, with what has still been a relatively steady uh, market for uh, securitized assets and other asset classes. So securitization is not just in the mortgage market. It's in, in many others. Uh, it, it hasn't had the kind of spectacular implosion yet, uh, say, in credit card receivables or in auto loan receivables and other types of things that we've seen for right. mortgages. There is some knock-on effect, but it's not not to the same extent. Uh, and, and so it begs the question of what's special about mortgages in this case. And one of the things that strikes me as special about it is the role of uh, various government chartered agencies who are also a part of this, uh, this underwriting and then uh, in credit enhancement and securitization process, uh, but are not necessarily a part of the processes with other asset classes. I think their, uh, their judgments are misjudgments also contribute to this and, and ask us from a policy standpoint to, to review 
the types of standards that they, regulatory standards that they live up to, supposedly, or and, and to look and see how we can uh, uh, revise those so that when they participate in this process, they uh, participate helpfully and constructively rather than, at least apparently in this case, uh, to the detriment of the, uh, the mortgage underwriting and securitization process. For what it's yeah. worth, for what it's worth uh, yeah, here in Washington just this week, uh, the chairman of the um, House Financial Services Committee, Barney Frank, has, has uh, told uh, servicers that uh, they will have to take losses on, on the distressed loans, quote, whether they like it or not, um, meaning that, um, uh, uh, that they are going to have to uh, take this haircut as a part of any kind of government uh, bailout. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's um, uh, not uh, not surprising, uh, but I, there's plenty of moral hazard all around, I suppose. Right. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things uh, about these policy prescriptions, in particular the uh, the Dodd Frank type of uh, activity, is it's actually it's actually people may say, oh, it's it's you know, it's it's too much government intervention. But in all honesty, this program and forcing lenders to actually take haircuts on their position is exactly what would happen even in the absence of government intervention. And in fact, I actually think there is a role for government intervention to facilitate the renegotiation of these contracts that would occur otherwise anyway. And the basic reason is that foreclosure is incredibly costly to lenders and homeowners and communities. And as a result, you know, we usually see in the wave of huge amounts of potential foreclosures efforts to try to renegotiate these contracts because there's surplus to be gained by just keeping people in their homes, surplus that both the lenders and the homeowners can share. And in that way, I think that, you know, Representative Frank is exactly right, that ultimately the lenders are going to have to take cuts. And they may say they don't want to take the cuts and the government's forcing them to do it, but at the end of the day, I think it would happen even in the absence of the program. The program can just facilitate it by making renegotiation a little bit simpler and structuring it through one central authority rather than having everyone independently trying to renegotiate the contracts. Well, here, I, one of the, the dangers I see with this is you know, think of the billions of dollars that we have outstanding in, in the securitization market that, that are being traded in the secondary market as well. And I guess what, what you see here, at least with regard to the securities that are out there is uh, through this type of, uh, uh, of arrangement, you're, you're kind of rewriting the, uh, the, uh, the contract with regard to those, especially those, those senior debt holders, and I, you, you, you can do it with the new stuff that's coming out, but to do it with the existing uh, uh, set of securities that are out there in the market, I think, is, is, has the potential for all sorts of mischief and all sorts of, uh, of concerns about undermining the investment back expectations of those especially those senior debt holders. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that there's no doubt that almost all of these proposals distort incentives in a way that are very, very problematic. I mean, we like to think people invest in risky securities. They should take their losses. Um, and any forced government intervention has this uh, has a bad effect ultimately on on the dynamic incentives, if you will, of how parties should be basically be treating the credit risk. In other words, if the government's going to bail me out, then you know I'm always going to think, well, let's set up a really risky uh, securitization pool, and I can always be, you know, I can always be sure that someone's going to bail me out if things go badly. And there are also legal issues um, uh, with you know respect to uh, 
alteration of contract, um, which uh, uh, you know would have to be sorted out uh, for any of these schemes to uh, pass a constitutional muster. Absolutely. I, I wonder, Sam, if, if, if we couldn't just briefly expand the, the scope of discussion about debt, just because I, I know subprime is very important, the mortgage market is very important, but but I think one of the other issues that we're going to see discussed at the at the conference are going to be around international issues. It's, uh, there are billions flowing about in, in mortgage-backed securities. Many of the investors in those are, are non-U.S. citizens. They're institutions and uh, other individuals overseas. There's also any number of other classes of debt where uh, we see either we have historically uh, crises we've dealt with or the potential for them. Uh, one of the things I'll be talking about in my paper uh, will be about uh, the role of credit assessment in the context of um, sovereign borrowing by developing countries. And in particular, the, uh, the potential for misjudgment by those same experts we were talking about in the context of mortgage-backed securities, uh, the major credit rating agencies. So if maybe we had a couple of minutes to talk about those issues. It'd be happy Please, to go ahead. There. I think one of the important issues there, it goes back to something we raised in the context of subprime, and that is that the credit assessors that come into play in uh, uh, billion-dollar loans, uh, other bond issuances and the like, syndicated credits to developing countries, um, are under some of the same pressures, competitive pressures in particular, uh, that we see in the context of um, uh, domestic loans in, in the mortgage market. That is, they aren't making these decisions in isolation. Uh, they aren't doing them merely from just based on the fundamentals. The fundamentals matter substantially, but they're not exclusive. They're also doing, making these assessments in the context of a private for-profit company trying to position itself in an industry, trying to respond to other competitor agencies willing to step in and rate issuances. And, and these competitive pressures can have significant and economically substantial impact on the way, at the end of the day, that they uh, assess the risk associated with these uh, large sovereign loans. Um, some of the evidence I'll present uh, suggests the following, suggests that uh, lending, or I should say credit rating, or loans uh, in the form of sovereign uh, uh, bond issuances by developing countries, uh, the ratings that go with those issuances uh, can be substantially explained not just by the fundamentals, but by some simple competitive dynamics. That is, the number of major credit rating agencies uh, available and willing to rate a certain de de developing country's sovereign debt. So, if I'm a finance minister in Argentina and I'm looking at two ways, to get a higher rating on my sovereign bond. One of them is to cut my external debt or cut my budget deficit. Now, that's never much fun, especially in an election year. Uh, the alternative would be to invite one or two additional uh, major credit rating agencies to rate my debt and thereby make them uh, a, a competitor, a rival seeking this business. Uh, that is not so uh, difficult for a finance minister to do. And some of the evidence, including the evidence I'm going to present, suggests that those types of activities can result in an increase in the uh, assessment of credit worthiness after you control for all the other factors. Competition among these risk raters seems to matter. And uh, I guess competition is a good thing in many, many senses, but perhaps not here if, at the end of the day, competition skews what would otherwise be the kind of fundamental risk assessment associated with lending to a developing country. That's really interesting, Paul. I think uh, one of the things that I think is very interesting about that is that 
I've done some research on rating agencies, and you tend to think that rating agencies, their main asset is ultimately their reputation, uh, their reputation to certify properly the debt issues that they look at. And I completely agree with you that it's almost impossible to think of five credit rating agencies that all have reputation ultimately competing with each other to give the most aggressive rating possible on any particular debt issue. So it, it, it would seem that in the long run, we really, I think there is a lot of value in very reputable credit rating agencies doing their job properly. But I completely agree about how competition, especially in the up times, you know, in boom times, where maximizing profits becomes very important. The conservative guy kind of looks get, looks down upon during those times. Why are you being so conservative? Let's give these guys what they want. Uh, those types of incentives are really dangerous. And I hope in the long run, that the rating agencies kind of learn this and learn that at, the, at their, their core value is being able to reputably certify something, not being overly aggressive, but in fact being conservative. And it seems like that's something that definitely broke down in a lot of the uh, sovereign markets that you're talking about. It's interesting, Amir, you, you, you point out how competition has this increasing effect on, on, if you will, optimism on the part of rating agencies. Right. We're going to look at this particular uh, sovereign borrower, and, and if things are looking good in the sovereign market more generally, then maybe we can afford to be a little more aggressive, be a little, uh, make a more positive credit assessment. And, and in fact, the evidence, and some of this is from my own research, is that that can whipsaw on you when suddenly the market changes, when a crisis such as the Asian financial crisis in 97, 98 takes place, and you have a kind of crisis-induced turbulence, then those same competitive rivalry effects can whipsaw on you and can lead to some excessively negative rating. So yeah. uh, that finance minister who benefits in Argentina during periods of stable, uh, increasing credit ratings and uh, lending can see an excessive drop if there are many of, of those raters willing to, how should I say it, to out-negative each other uh, once things start going down. So there's, there are real concerns about how competition can uh, exacerbate either the, the positive or the negative uh, trends we see with developing country lending and investment. What I think is absolutely fascinating about this also is if you think about debt as an instrument, uh, a holder of debt should naturally be conservative, right? Because the payments to a debt obligation, if the equity of whatever you're doing is, is really high, you still get the same interest payments, right? No matter how much the, uh, the underlying, for example, a government revenue or you think about a corporate bond or uh, you think about a household. But it's on the downside where you're really worried, right? The default risk is naturally should make you very conservative and look out for the, the kind of bad states of the world where your instrument is going to be worth less because of defaults and whatnot. So we naturally think the instrument is created to make people conservative, yet I completely agree in hot times or in boom times, Somehow this conservatism just goes out the window, and this is true of credit rating agencies. This is also true if you look at just bank loan officers. Uh, all of a sudden, the conservative guy gets looked down upon in these competitive pressures and these boom times, and it's a cycle we see over and over again. And it's interesting to know or to think, you know, can markets learn to adjust for these things and to value conservative behavior even in boom times? Looks like there's an arbitrage opportunity for somebody. Yeah, well, the problem is, can you get a job doing it? I think that's ultimately, you know, it, it's it's got to be totally the case that within these large banking institutions or credit rating agencies, 
in boom times, the conservative guy gets looked down upon. I mean, it has to be the case. Uh, you know, why are you being excessively conservative? Everything's great. Uh, and so somehow you've got to get the internal incentives of the operation to value conservatism. Uh, that's been a point of a lot of research, academic research and finances. How do you structure incentives that even in boom times, exactly like you said before, how do you bias the rating agencies, the lending officers, how can you bias them to actually remain conservative when all the forces are telling them to get more aggressive in their rating behavior? Well, there's a big market for uh, irrational exuberance, obviously, and uh, time will tell what uh, lessons um, are relearned or learned uh, through the current uh, crisis in both the international markets as well as the uh, subprime uh, markets here at home. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time uh, for today, and there's clearly much more to discuss. I note that the first day of the upcoming debt symposium uh, will be streamed live over the Internet on May 2nd, and uh, those who sign up for the program will also be able to get the second day sessions uh, and discussions without uh, additional charge. More information on that will be available on the ABI homepage at www.abiworld.org. I want to thank our guests uh, today, in particular, uh, Paul Waller and Amir Sufi for being with us, uh, and thanks to all of you for listening. You can hear the full library of over 50 podcasts from the link on our homepage at abiworld.org. And so until next time, for ABI Podcast, this is Sam Giordano.